John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 505.2K0316, certificate number 51668, the Fulda Gap. Fulda Gap was on my very earliest list of topics. Potential topics for on an omnibus episode, like three years ago. Three years ago. Three and a half years ago. And then, uh, and then I went with the Darien Gap episode pretty early on. And uh, having done an episode on a gap, I felt like I couldn't follow up with another gap episode. Either I had to do fold a gap next, right after Darien Gap. It's a theme. Or, or leave the gap episodes, separate them by by a year or two at mo- at least. Would you say you left a gap? Did you have to leave a Darien Gap gap? I did. There's been a gap episode gap in Omnibus, but I'm here to I'm here to fill that gap now with the Fulda gap. I would love you to fill my gap, John. Oh dear, you had to go there. Well, I don't understand what you mean. <sighs> what do you think my fascination with the Cold War is? Go on. It's clearly just, you know, you're such a Reagan fan. Yeah. It's clearly just a Reaganite's nostalgia for an imagined world That's of, right. of good, of good exceptional America versus evil tyrants. Evil Soviet tyrants. Yes. And if, you know, and if the Soviets won't step up, you, you invent little strongmen. You mm-hmm. invent a Gaddafi or, or something. Right. Um, but what you really want is an evil empire. An evil empire. How, without an evil empire, how do you show that you're the good empire? The moral you, superior. You might be the evil one, and you wouldn't even know. Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? So I think that's what it is for you. No, you just probably like the fashion, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing like Cold War fashion. <laughs> <laughs> People just miss the time when they were kids, because you assume that's the default state. You assume... I assume everything in America was like the mid to late seventies, right? Until I was born, and then it kept being the mid to late seventies for a while, and then we moved on. But clearly, that was the default state of things. What Davy the- Crockett was born in the mid to late seventies. He loved, um, uh, you know, he loved the Bionic Woman. The mid to late eighteen seventies. No, David <laughs> David Crockett was born before that. Yeah, no, he just they, they had. I just in my mind, I, I just see. think. Um, you know, Ignatius de Loyola had a Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. Right. 
It's it, it, yeah, it's a fixed point, right? Davy Crockett actually will figure into our story here in a minute. Are you serious? Oh, he yeah. had his own gap. Are you? Are you going Crockett gap? Are we going to wait three more years and then do a Cumberland Gap entry? This is going to. Well, you know what? Either I do Cumberland Gap next, or where we wait three years. I'm going to do an episode on Baby Gap between mm-hmm. your, you know, about the failure of Gap to launch a child's spinoff. Right in between. Wait, Baby Gap wasn't a success. There were Baby Gaps everywhere. I think there are. Are they gone? Am I thinking of Babies R Us? Yeah, Babies R Us are gone. Well, yeah, because it turns out nobody wants to go to a store to buy a baby now that Amazon's <laughs> delivering them. Yeah, you can get a baby anytime. If Toys R Us sells toys, I actually what had to re- does Babies R Us sell? <laughs> I had to return a baby that came in the mail. It was damaged a couple of days ago, and Am- Amazon gave me one of those uh, no return refunds, so they gave me my money back, and I got to keep the baby. But that's what you don't want when it's a damaged baby. Well, You're you looking know, for somebody to take it off your hands. Look, there's plenty you can do with a damaged baby. I think that my fascination with the Cold War. Um, you think I'm wrong about all my theories, my well, various theories? I'm not a Reaganite, and uh, and the fashion was terrible. Yeah, I think um, I. But I'm often trying to figure out what you like. The hardware you like the you like the Jane's angle. I like the hardware, but it feels like studying the Cold War will help us know what to do next. And and I mean that in the sense that, as you said, as you're so famous. Uh, famous, as you famously say, one of your catchphrases is, they're always fighting the last war. I hear you say it all the time. People love it when I say it. People have a t-shirt of me saying it. Wow. We're always fighting the last war, says Ken. Ken uh, Jennings. What actually is the origin of that? How, how long has there been... I mean, it's a Rumsfeldian observation, right? Yeah, I feel like it 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 applies to or World pe- War One. Did people in World War II think it about World War One? Did people... Was it not till Vietnam... I, I Did people feel, in the Civil War say it about the Mexican-American War? I think that it is a World War I phrase because World War I is the example of the generals really trying to fight a cavalry war in a, in a mechanized machine gun era. And But it's, it's not just something that we say now about them. Even at the time, they were like, uh, Ach du lieber, we are fighting the last war. Or, mon dieu. Monocle pops out. You know, I think that it, I think that um, in that era, right, the Maginot Line was built after the First World War, and it, and it was an incredible investment for France. Must have been expensive. Very expensive, and it, it was Infrastructure Week, and it did absolutely zilch because the Germans just went around it. So that's an example of the French fighting the last war, and in the in World War One, you know, they the the generals were still trying to. Um, we're in a trench war environment. We're still trying to fight a cavalry war. What is the word I'm trying to find? Is it cavalry or cavalry? What, which is the right one in this context? I never get it right. What do you think it is? Horses, cavalry. Yes. And you said it right. And, and I think you always say it right. And then you doubt yourself. Yeah. What you need is the courage of your convictions. And cavalry is the biblical hill. Yes. Okay. And you were just telling me that you actually write Soviet now with an L when you write it down. I put an L in Soviet now. You have you have <clears throat> swallowed your own Kool-Aid, you believe your own myth. I don't I don't Soviet has an L. I don't follow spell checkers. I turn spell checker off now because my spelling is as good as theirs. And I just who who am I writing for? It's like John for Lennon. Me alone. It's like John Lennon said. I don't believe in spell checkers. I don't believe I in I just spell believe checkers. in me. But then he wrote me with two E's. <laughs> and it was really important. Well, because he meant I just believe in me. And then, he, and then he got pushed off his balcony at the Dakota. 
But this is an example. The, the Folda Gap is, a, is an example of fighting the last war. Um, but it's an, an example of it um, where the war never actually was fought. But I feel like fighting the last war, the reason we say it is that it is, it's such an eloquent metaphor for, uh, for just a, a conservative tendency that human beings have yeah. when confronted with a new problem. You hear it in economics. People will be like, this stock um, spike is the permanent one. This one will not end because look, all the things that would have happened last time haven't happened yet. Right. And then from out of nowhere, the internet collapses or uh, housing speculation collapses or, you know, it's, it's, it just always comes from a new angle. It's just really what it shows is that you can never predict the next bullet that has your name on it because everyone assumes it'll be the last one. It's true, but, but the, the problem with the, or the, uh, the effectiveness of the last war metaphor is that um, is the persistence that we have in Im employing tactics that aren't working uh, because of the conservative nature of military hierarchies of corporations. It's a, a lot of them. Are, it's not just, a lot of it. It's not just conservative thinking. They're actually vested and vested. people are profiting on fighting the last war. It would be the, the maybe the, business models are unproven as to how you would fight the next war. Whereas the last war is guaranteed income. Cause we know how much we made in the nineties. Right. And, and I think we're, we're just now in the popular press starting to wrestle with the fact that maybe we're already fighting the next war and it involves, um, hacking and Stuxnets and, um, yeah. and it's a, it's a war that's being fought economically as you know, the battlefield is global economics. And meanwhile, we're still pouring billions into stealth fighter technology when there won't be any, any more like, um, superpower fighting wars. It will all be done in term, you know, it will all be, the, the battles will all be like, uh, deactivating one another's dams by putting a bug into the, into the uh, Windows 95 that's currently running all of America's infrastructure. Yeah, like we thought the Chinese believed that political power comes out of the barrel of a gun, but it just turns out they're not going to need a single gun to beat us. They're right. just going to need to fill our dollar trees with with uh, stuff that devalues our currency because we buy so much of it. Political power comes out of the barrel of a dollar tree. Very nice. It comes out of the discount barrel. That's how, how about that? That's one of the famous Ken Jennings sayings. Political power comes out of the discount barrel. I'm going to put out a little, a little, what color should my book be? It can't be red. Orange. A little orange book. A little orange book. Ken's little orange book. Are you saying that because I'm wearing orange right now? You just have very limited imagination. I was stunned that you arrived today, not only in an outfit that has color in it, because you typically dress in blues and grays, I gray always, blues and blue grays. I always show up here in a white short sleeve dress shirt. Yeah. And a, With a pencil uh, and a conservative tie. Yeah. yeah. And a pencil and a pocket. And a little name tag that says, hi, I'm Ken. <laughs> Uh, but no, you're wearing like a rust-colored stripe shirt that looks like it's maybe from taken from a tent, and then matching shirt shorts, matching shorts. You're you, you're phenomenal. Thrift store find. Really good. Uh, no, that's not why I said orange. Orange is my favorite color. Oh, is that right? So when somebody says, "What should it be called? What what color should it be?" I always say orange because it's the only color I can think of. Because you're because you're eating Doritos and you look down at your hand and you're like, like orange uh, Cheetos actually. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not che- like what about the the big Cheeto, the former Cheeto in chief? You know, you know who I'm talking about? Chester Cheese? Yeah, oh I'm no, talk- no the I'm, other talk- Cheeto. I'm talking about Chester Cheeto. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't think about do, him anymore. Do you remember when Chester Cheeto was president? He's gone. He's he's gone. He doesn't exist anymore. Except in the except in the memory or in the in the like glazed over donut eyes of the Republican Congress. That's because we voted for Tony the Tiger, and now Chester Cheetah is um there's no is, there's no more is blogging. Uh, but the the last war business um, during the the Cold War, we had a lot of experience uh, in in the twentieth century alone. Uh, the generals had a lot of experience looking at how their their general forefathers, and in some cases literally their fathers, their forefathers general, their forefathers general, uh, forefathers generals generals. It was understood and studied that as a general, you had a responsibility not to fight the last war, but to predict the next war. That's part of being a, a general in an army of technology or in a time of technology. But what if that was the last war advice? That's exactly right. What if fighting the last war is the next war? <laughs> oh my gosh. And you just didn't realize it until it was too late. I mean, it just we, blew my mind, Curtis LeMay. We watched we watched uh, the Russians undermine an entire American election and and throw our country into total turmoil just by posting like memes on Facebook. Uh, it turns out that that um, you re- they didn't again they didn't need a bullet they didn't need a single bullet they just needed like pictures of Hillary. But at the end of World War II, uh, which was in some ways like. The last real hardware war, um, there, there, uh, intelligence played a major role in World War II, but also so did bombs. We just had to make like 10,000 boats. Yeah, bombs and tanks and guns and people uh, really were who fought that war. Um, nowadays. Nowadays, they're all dead. All those people are dead. That is 90, not true. 99% of them I are. looked this up this week. Did you know the number of World War II vets is like, we've lost a third of them just in the last five years? Third, a third of the remaining ones. Sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> no they were all alive until, until 2015. It's true. Like every six hours, half of the remaining World War II vets die. What's the half-life? Of a, so if you look at the actuarial tables, do you know what year the last World War II vet is expected to die in? It's like 2043 or something. Huh? Like, literally, we're expecting one of these guys to live to be about 120. It has to be one of the very youngest ones. Well, but it, they would have had to have been born yes. two years into the war. Yes. So... No, no, no. If they, if they, if not they died... To be a, not to be 120. Oh, oh, a, oh, I see, they I see, would, I see. You don't die when you turn 100. Immediately you die when you're 100. <laughs> Is that true? Although that would be Can nice. that be proved? It would be a Logan's run. <laughs> it would be a Logan. I mean, you, you just model it with, with how the curve is, right. is so, uh, asymptotically approaching all veterans dead. Assuming 114 t- tends to be like the, the, the long age. But um, it'll get longer sometime between now and 2043, presumably. Oh, maybe, maybe so. Although that's not the trend in that's America right. anymore. Seems debatable. But. Until five years ago it was. <laughs> Um, oh, how interesting. So there are World War II vets walking among us. Every time I see a guy that looks older than 70, I'm going to sidle up to him and say, were you in the big one? Where, where, where'd you fight? The last World War I veteran died in 2012, and it was a 110-year-old British woman. The previous, the, the last combat victim had been a, uh, a British man who served in the Royal Navy who died in May 2011 at 110 also. My great uncle Al fought in World War One, and he died in 1989. So that's what I'm going. He on. wasn't even top ten, probably. 
Um, no, 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 no. He died. I mean, he's, I mean, he did he pretty su- well. He survived World War One, yeah. which is, you know, that's the, that's he, what you want. He made it to 1989. He was, you know, he was 92 or something like I'm that. I'm just saying, if you're a World War veteran and you live to see the 20s, you yeah. are stoked. Yeah. Because they're, you know, they're pouring champagne into one of those pyramids of 100 champagne glasses and they're dancing on tables with short hair. It's great. Those were happy times. You never, otherwise he never would have seen a flapper. You know, they seem like happy times from here. But then but they led to the depression. Who knows what, what, what it was really about. Well, they were all dying from the, the Spanish flu. Well, they were also all sad. Do you think F. Scott Fitzgerald and his friends were happy? No. No, the writers were sad. Oh, you think the normals were happy? Yeah, normals the are normies. always happy. <laughs> That's one of the things that makes them the normies. They're happy. Right. That's why we need the writers. Um, but up until World War II, and I think, you know, it, arguably until Vietnam, um, war was naturally understood to be uh, a question of t- territory. You're here. They're there. And then you collide, and the winner is the one that goes over the center line. Who gets the middle. And takes the... It's like running for the balls in dodgeball. Right. Um, And are you saying the game risk is not relevant anymore? Well, if you think about the Vietnam War, we kept trying to fight Vietnam that way, imagining that if you captured territory, it mattered. But in Vietnam, there was no territory the the war was 360 degrees and you could take it you could take this village and cordon it off and the you know the the war would just kind of ebb and flow fine you know the in the night the war was one thing and in the day the war was another there wasn't um there wasn't a front line in vietnam there was you say we were fighting the on, last war go on la dernière guerre uh that they they always think the war is the they they always think you're fighting the last war. It's just not the last war. It's the last war. What if the generals were so dumb they literally thought they were fighting the last war? Like they thought they were in Korea the whole time, and at the end they're like, "Well, that's why we lost. We were looking at maps of Korea. We weren't. This wasn't Vietnam." They couldn't have. They could if that's not what they were doing, then they have no excuse. But, but uh, that would almost be less embarrassing than what really happened. And Korea is another example. I mean, there is a there there ended up being a DMZ, but that DMZ didn't represent an actual fighting front line that went back and forth, back and forth, and then they said stop. I mean, the DMZ is kind of drawn arbitrarily. Um, it must have been nice that the whole thing was a line because that's middle. just so simple. Yeah, you can picture the line. It's 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 one dimensional. In fact, all you have is length. You, do we put more men at this end or that end? And that was true of the, the the border between North and South Korea, but that, or I'm sorry, North and South Vietnam, but that was not the fighting no. line, right? Um, but in World War II, and in particularly in the in the waning days of uh, Germany, it was very much about a front line and then multiple front lines. The Russians were coming from the east. The the uh, ally the uh, British and Americans with their friends, with their helpful friends, the French, were coming from the West. Got to have the free French, probably some Polish guys. Who knows? Hard to prove there weren't. Well, yeah. Gene Hackman was uh, was leading the Polish Air Force. Um, he was? Well, that's a, that's a reference to the longest day. Uh, oh, no, not the longest day. The longest bridge. The bridge over the longest— A bridge too far. The bridge over the longest week. The bridge over the longest week starring yeah. Gene Hackman as, as Pat, the, Polish General— uh, Thaddeus K- Vladislav Koslizislav. Uh, Mike Shashevsky. I'm probably going to get letters, and I'd rather not. So no, that was all correct. Um, 
if you think about uh, if you think about the end of, the, of World War II, you know there were a lot of thinking about uh, yeah. Close your eyes, deck visualize of the, deck of the Missouri. Oh, you mean war in Europe? If we're thinking about, I'm in the bunker. If we're thinking about prior to that, the Yalta Conference, where Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt all gathered to decide the fate of Europe and how they were going to slice it up, and Stalin had one idea, and Churchill had another, and Roosevelt, you know, just wants everybody to get along. Uh, and one of the deals that they arranged in in their in their scheme to uh, to draw a line down the middle. They were going to cut Germany into into slices, uh, but they they agreed that Berlin was going to be commonly held a, a, a an op- a free city. Mm-hmm. And um, toward the end of the war, it was all it was clear to Churchill even in even as they were sitting there at the table. But it but it became clearer to everyone else that the Russians were just going to take as much as they could. It was going to be zones. It was going to be zones, and and. And where the line was going to be was basically where the Russian army stopped. So uh, as the American army and the, and the British army moved east, they had a, a, they had a real motivation to move further east than the agreed-upon line yeah. in order to give themselves some kind of negotiation with the Russians just to hold them to the, uh, to the deal. The Alta terms. And in the process of doing that as the American – a mechanized army sped across Germany, they discovered that um, that there was a path through central Germany. Germany has several geographical regions or geological regions, geographical, logical re- regions. Okay. Logical, um, geographical. Logical, geographical regions. The whole sort of northern plain of Germany is a big, wide open, flat sort of uh, Bonnot, you know, they're not, there aren't, there aren't really mountains there. It's, it's a great fertile plain that, that, um, you know, and that thousands and thousands upon thousands of years ago would have all been under the ocean or whatever, you know, big flat, um, farm, let's say it's a farm that goes from Amsterdam to Moscow. It's a big farm. It's a one big giant farm. And it all used to be underwater. And it was all underwater. When the Beatles a, played in Hamburg, they were wearing bubbly 60s scuba helmets. It was, it's famously known as a giant underwater farm, all of Northern Europe. Yeah, the GUF. Um, and then in central Germany, there are lots of sort of what, what they would call mountains. Uh, they would use the German word for mountain, which is berg. Like, Wait, so an iceberg is just an ice mountain? It's an ice, ice, ice mountain. And the Goldbergs are, are gold, gold, gold mountains? mountains? Yeah. Seems a little anti-Semitic. Mm, I mean, if you think about uh, what are some other bergs? Um, Berg, Bergdorf, Gordman. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a Pitts mountain. It can't be a pit and a mountain. No, but it's Those Pitt. It's named after Mr. Oh, Pitt. Oh, it's William Pitts. Mountain. Yeah, Mr. Pitts. I think mountain. that's actually we're going to get letters because that's Berg with a U, which is city. Yeah, Berg, this is city. Berg. Berg, which is different. Like the famous. We know uh, it's different. We're just goofing. Yeah, we're this is this part of the goof that we do. It just seems like we don't know anything on this show and are googling in real time. <laughs> <laughs> we. Uh, so central Germany and southern Germany have lots of uh, what they would call bergs, Bergen. Uh, mountains. They aren't really what we here in the Pacific Northwest would call mountains. They tend to be six, seven hundred meters, two thousand feet. We're not down into the Alps yet. No, no, no. These are these are, but it's a very hilly country. Okay. It's very rolly poly. There, there are uh, the people are all roly poly Sergeant Schultz types. Uh, no, oh that's no, Bavaria. they're very fit. They're very fit. Yes, uh, they go out for they go out for schlosses all the time, and they they're they're wanderers. 
They wander. But as the U.S. Army was speeding across Germany on its way to try and meet up with the Soviet Army as far east as they, as they could manage, they discovered that right around the town of Fulda, and this isn't that, that they discovered it, it was already on their maps. People had been to Germany before. A few. But they learned in this era of, of tank combat mm -hmm. that there was a way across central Germany where uh, the whole way was kind of flat and level. There were a couple of valleys that allowed the, the, um, the American uh, uh, 12 Corps, which was, you know, the, a mechanized army. Tank. Uh, they bunch made of tanks and jeeps. A bunch of tanks and jeeps and, and, and whatnot. Uh, they made it all the way really to uh, the border of Czechoslovakia uh, without encountering a lot of terrain. Uh, it was it was you know flat and wide open. They didn't just stop and touch the Brandenburg Gate and say first. Uh, kind of. They, that's what they were. And when they met the when they met the advancing Soviet army, you know, the Soviets were like, "Whoa, what are you doing here?" We had dibsies. And, but it ended up working in in uh, America's favor because it was clear, I think, that the, that the USSR did not intend to honor their commitments to keeping Berlin a free city. And that, this is not to besmirch the reputation of the USSR. Of Joseph Stalin. <laughs> Far be it from us to say anything about his character. But the fact that, that the U.S. Army had advanced so far into Germany ended up being a, a powerful negotiating tactic because we were able to say, like, we are with, we will withdraw, and we would like you also to ensure that we have access to Berlin and and uphold your commitments. And also in that big, that fast advance, we were collecting lots and lots of German scientists that we would go on to use in our Operation Paperclip, where we, which was the American dream of blowing up the moon. It was the American dream of blowing up the moon. The American dream of giving safe, safe harbor to lots of war criminals because it would help us make more, more bombs, more rockets and bombs. So, I mean, you say the Fulda Gap was not, was discovered, but I guess Americans had never really cared about the fastest way to get tanks across Germany before. The other European powers and America had only cared about the tanks that were leaving Germany for other places. That's right. right. And, and, and the, the, this area around Fulda was recognized as militarily important, uh, during the Napoleonic wars, mm. because this was the, the battle of, uh, of Leipzig was right there. This was one of the great, you know, like the profound defeats of Napoleon's army, pr you know, pre his exile to Elba. And, um, so cavalry had been coming through here for a while. Well, but but again, this was not, there weren't really, this was some intra-German topography. Yeah. There weren't massive armies moving through the center of Germany. I mean, it's really far, it's about as far as you can be from a border and still be in Germany. Yeah, it's really, really, really the very heart of it. And it was only Napoleon, um, it, it was the Fulda Gap that allowed Napoleon to retreat and keep control of his army and keep, you know, keep the defeat from being a rout. And it was kind of understood then that this was, that these valleys were a way you could move, move a big army through an area that if, if, uh, if Napoleon's armies had been backed up against, um, some mountains, then it would have been a much, it would have been a much worse outcome for him. Um, 
But it wasn't until the very end of World War II that the Fulda Gap kind of entered into military planners' minds as a, a like a geographic, uh, like like an asset or a or like yeah the or a a, a, a court a, a board game. A piece? Uh, a, a piece. <laughs> an arena? An what, arena. What do you call that? A theater. How about that? Let's call it a theater. I feel like I couldn't remember the word theater once in military terms, and you helped me out. Yeah, so let me do this. Again. Theater with an E at the end. Theatre. Right. Um, and immediately, the Cold War kind of descended upon central Germany, and what had, up until that point, been a set of valleys, as you say, in the very heart of of the German peoples. Um, now the intra German border between East and West Germany cut right through this area. So what had never before been, um, an area in contention, a strategic area now suddenly was, uh, profoundly strategic on the most militarized border in the world between West and East Germany. And although, we think of the Cold War, especially from a United States standpoint, as being one of strategic weapons and global strategic Ballistic geopolitics missiles and-, and and intercontinental bombers and the and you know all these proxy wars in Africa and and Asia. Um, from the from the standpoint of uh, Europe on the ground and in particular in particular Germany the war between the superpowers was still being conceptualized as a ground war. Well, wouldn't you, if there were that many of the enemy's tanks that close? Well, this is the hard part about, this is the thing about fighting the last war. Um, when you think about the movie war games and as I often, as you often do, as we often do, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the things that we sit and talk about, right? As we, we each do our like war games, I do, feel, I do feel like Civilization is just catching up with all the movies I already knew cold on VHS. Yeah. Like, it really has validated, like, my terrible taste as a kid, because today people are still making references to Clue with, <laughs> with Michael McKean and Madeline Kahn and War Games and all these movies that nobody cared about when they came out. I mean, these movies were not flops, but... Right. But the culture Te- is... Teens cared. Yeah. The culture is now uh, respecting these teen movies in a way that nobody cares about children of a lesser God or Amadeus. Mm, mm. Take that kiss of the spider woman with William Hurt. You know, uh, clue has Jane Wheedlin as the uh, singing telegram delivery girl. And boy, that's still, I'll just rewind that little section of the tape. No, over she gets and over. shot in the head. We don't want, we I don't stopped, want that to happen. I to stopped Jane. right before she gets shot. I just, it's just on a permanent loop. It's so actually I'm, a screensaver. We were just talking about how I'm a Belinda Carlisle guy, but you're a Jane Wheedlin I'm a Jane guy. Jane Wheedlin guy. We have different go-go's. We do. Yeah. Yep. You were a you were a Belinda person. I really I uh, I was not a Belinda person. I was a Jane. I mean, she's in one of my most watched '80s VHS movies, Bill and Ted. So she's in Bill and Ted, right? Joan of Arc, also great. I also have that on a, on a permanent loop in my imagination. But I do feel like War Games is um still it's still a like metaphorically valuable in the culture. War Games is a great film, and and for those uh, futurelings who don't have access to a VHS player. Um, is it out on? Uh, <laughs> is it on streaming now, or do you still have to watch it on beta? No, it's still there. You can find it on streaming. I watched it not very long ago. But the um, but the the conceit of war games is that 
it's and it's it's still an, a, a, I guess it's a, it's a useful metaphor because it's still a, a an open question in military circles. Uh, they took the human element out of the strategic response to um, to a first strike of nuclear weapons, and uh, a computer called Whopper. Uh, w O P R. I can't remember what it stands for. War operations planning. Close. Very good. Oh, planned response. War operations planned response. Uh, Whopper uh, has the capacity in the the 1980s computer capacity to run every possible war scenario that might lead to global thermonuclear war. And what Whopper does is run every single scenario and determines that everything, every tiny regional conflict in um, in the Cold War universe of 1984 would ultimately lead to a world-destroying global thermonuclear war. Haven't we talked about this scene before where it goes through these kind of absurdly hyper-local yeah, scenarios? Right. It's like, right. here's the Equatorial Guinea gambit. Right, and, and the here, yeah. Uzbekistani uh, end run yeah. and all this stuff. And so that's what makes the um, the 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 planning around the Fulda, the Fulda Gap so uh, incomprehensibly local. Because when you think about the way that you would envision World War III in a world where there were thousands and thousands of intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed at each other um, around the globe, the idea that the war it's, – it's very conceivable that the war might be sparked by some incident a border at the border. Skirmish. The idea that, that, that it would matter at all. In the sense that that, that tank battles that that a that a that a Soviet tank incursion into West Germany would last more than a half an hour before it triggered uh, like an overwhelming nuclear response. Given the doctrine, given the mutually assured destruction doctrine, which we've sure. talked about before, and yet these two worlds uh, coexisted. That the U.S. military and the and the Soviet military were prepared to employ um, the mutually assured destruction doctrine, but also were pouring men and money and technology into defending this series of small valleys in West Germany. Oh, so the. Is, is that true? Like this was super, this one series of Valley was super militarized in the fifties and sixties. So the Fulda gap was recognized by both the Russians and the Americans or both b b the Soviets and the West and NATO as the, um, overwhelming favorite for the location of the Soviet invasion of the West. It's the linchpin. Now, so the Soviets agreed. They're like, oh, if, we, if we invade, we're going. This is where we're right coming. There, there were only kind of three routes, and one of them was were the, the Northern Plains. Great, uh, great uh, urban farm or whatever. The, the great undersea, undersea farm, farm of, of Northern Europe. Uh, and that would have been a much better path in terms of like you could run a thousand tanks abreast and make a real impact on people as you roll in. But the north of Germany is not where the German industrial heart is. That's not where the factories are. That's not where the mines are. There's nothing to grab up there. It's just, it's like staging a battle 
in a place that's picturesque rather than where there's anything you want. It's like invading North Dakota. It's like invading North Dakota. Which is the premise of Red Dawn, I guess. Another great 80s film that's a wonderful metaphor for today. It's not North Dakota. I don't know where Red Dawn is set. Uh, And the other route would be up the Danube River, which is another kind of uh, path uh, path that you could travel into the heart of Germany where you wouldn't have to cross all these these sort of rugged forests and mountains. And they could do it on those like dinner cruise boats? They would do it. But the problem is they'd be going upstream and those boats run out of gas fast on those long cruisers. But also, you know, Austria was was nominally neutral during the Cold War, and so they would be, you know, they'd be Maginot line, lining it, or they'd be, you know, they'd be coming through the Belgium of the South, which is what we call Austria. But the Fulda Gap is this targeted, these two little valleys on either side of a central massif, where Basically, the valleys point at the industrial heart of Germany. They point directly at Frankfurt, at all of the mines and the military bases and airports and the financial hub. They've got that big billboard that says invade here. Yeah, Dortmund. It's all down the valley, basically. And so both sides of the Cold War saw like it's definitely going to happen here. This is where it's going to happen. They're going to seize our Schwebebahn. And in the early days, you know, 1948, 49, you know, it was um, that, you know, each side kind of stationed a little army there to like, well, you know, we know that this is where you'd come. So like, we're still friends. Everybody just hold your horses. But as the region got more and more militarized, those um, either side of the fold gap got uh, more and more built up. Um, the U.S., army there was um, the the five corps on the U.S. side. And on the Soviet side, it was their eighth, eighth guards army. And they, they built up the wall, but they also started um, developing new military strategies and hardware and doctrine around what they were, around the inevitable giant tank battle that each side envisioned as an inevitability. And this is happening again in a context where somewhere else in, in this same, in these same exact militaries, there's someone with a flag pin on his lapel with his finger over a red button ready for, you know, some Cuban freighter to, to fart wrong. And they're going to push the button and the whole thing goes off. But that air force colonel didn't, wasn't in the meeting on the folded gap here, here over here at the folded gap. We've got, um, on the, on the Soviet side, 1000 tanks and 1000 additional armored personnel carriers. And on the other side, on the American side, uh, what became an essentially a military industrial complex unto itself. Both sides understood that the that the Soviets could muster and the and I'm sorry the 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 um, Warsaw Pact could muster an, an enormous army much larger than NATO could do just manpower um, and and mechanized infantry and armor. There were always going to be more. Is that Warsaw really true? Is it because everybody's everybody can get called up theoretically in in one of these Eastern European countries? Yeah, we, we were. I mean, West Germany was a all volunteer army full of pot smoking hippies in 1968, right? Of the West was, I mean, proving 
they're proving the Warsaw Pax theory. We were a bunch of decadent uh, students, hippies and students. We didn't. We weren't mustering a an army to invade the the East. They all saw the graduate and were like, "These guys can't even like, get out of the pool. Yeah, you can't. This is no army." There were oh, there were a million and a quarter uh, Warsaw Pact troops on the east side of the Foldy Gap. A million plus soldiers pointed at this valley. That's you know uh, this is active duty just yeah just stationed at various yeah. places in Eastern Europe. That's a measurable number of kilometers across, and on the west side. A similarly 900,000 troops, uh, including a lot, I know a lot of futurelings listening here are now middle-aged futurelings who, in their youth, were in some way, shape, or form stationed- They're all army brats In from the Folda Gap. Whose dad was- Either they were, either their, their parents were in the army or they were in the army themselves and they're listening to this show and they're going, I was in the Folda Gap. I was there. Uh, but the- the understanding from the Western side was that anyone stationed in the Folda Gap was basically a speed bump. Because we were outmanned. Outmanned. There and was a Folda Gap gap. There was a Folda Gap gap. And we were, the, the soldiers there in the Army 5 Corps, the 11th Cav, they were just there to slow the Russians down on their, I guess, like inevitable, inexorable uh, race to Portugal. Race, yeah, right. <laughs> like race to Frankfurt and then to um, to Paris or whatever the plan was. Whatever the imagined war it was that they thought they were going to be fighting, where because each side was prepared to lose seven hundred and fifty thousand troops in the first twenty four hours. Is there a scenario where people are like, we're aware of mutually assured destruction, so maybe that will hold, and it just stays a land war? I mean, in hindsight, that doesn't seem likely because it didn't happen. But Well, here's what America did to complicate matters. This was one of the ways um, that we tried to uh, even out the, the gap in mechanized armor and infantry was this was one of the places that America envisioned tactical nuclear weapons having a role on the battlefield. And... By tactical nuclear weapons, I mean nukes, but that were meant to be shot out of cannons or uh, later fired from shoulder-launched, um, like, rocket launchers. So satisfying when you see some a tank battalion heading at you and you just make a little mushroom cloud in the middle of it. Right. This was the and – then, and then ultimately mines, basically backpack-sized landmines that were – very small nukes, little nukes that only were the size of huge bombs, but were nukes. So if a tank drives over it, you lose the whole mountainside. They're they're on timers or they have little switches, you know, they're they're not actually like pressure released. But yeah, they're set up that way, like hide this one behind a tree, and when the tranks come through, we can you know, it'll do the work of a hundred men. Little fat man and little, little boy. Normal weight man and littler boy. In fact, one of them, the 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 smallest backpack bomb was called Little Feller. See, today we don't think backpack nukes are cute at all. No, we do not. They, they, make, our, they make our sphincters tighten when we imagine backpack nukes in our cities. They weren't even really that cute then, but they were... Uh, they spent, I mean, and by they, I mean, we spent, and by we, I mean the United States of America, God bless her, 
spent a lot of money developing these backpack bombs, which were the idea was either uh, as the as the Soviets were coming through the gap, you set your bomb with your little James Bond timer on it, like run, and then a nuke would go off, or uh, or they were they they made them so that you could actually parachute out of an airplane with one on your back. And your pal would jump out with you, and the two of you would be a two-man commando team that would, like, go plan a nuke on the a The three of you, if you count little fella. <laughs> little feller. Little feller. Little feller. This seems like it has Governor Earl Warren's um, beliefs about radioactivity. It's pretty bad. And, and what they discovered um, was that the radiation uh, from these was pretty bad mm. and didn't uh, stay confined it was very hard to target radiation. I think we've discovered this about <laughs> nukes. Wouldn't it's hard you, to point it at somebody. Wouldn't you assume that? I guess it's it's unprecedented for, uh, for I guess we, you know, mustard gas spreads. You, you wouldn't yeah. imagine radioactivity doing the same thing? That's what's crazy. We knew all of this, yeah. but it didn't keep us from developing the technology. But it goes further than that. In fact, whole uh, universes of what we came to think of as the U.S. arsenal of... Freedom. Equipment, freedom in the form of equipment. Uh, the M1 tank, the Apache helicopter, which is a sort of a ground support helicopter that you see in a lot of Hollywood movies where it's a, it's not meant to, uh, to transport troops. It's just like got a gun on the front and, uh, the two, two, the two pilots are sitting tandem Yeah, and it's got rocket launchers on the sides. Um, and also the A-10 Thunderbolt, otherwise known as the Warthog, which is a, an Air Force jet that was designed exclusively for ground support. You, you recognize it when I'm you look at, at it? it now, yeah. um, the Air Force has been trying to get rid of the A-10 Warthog since two days after it was commissioned. But there's no other airplane that does the job, really. Every airplane wants to do the job. But these ended up being the, the hardware that we used in the Gulf War and in all of the our Middle Eastern misadventures, we're still using fully gap surplus because we were because the Iraqi army was using Soviet surplus, <laughs> and we finally got to fight. Yay! <laughs> They're fighting the last war, so we get to. We finally got to fight the last war because Iraq was not a nuclear power, and all of the all of this technology. It turned out they were not particularly close. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, that's right. To being a nuclear power. Um, but one of the one of the other systems that we uh, devised to use nukes in this capacity was called the Davy Crockett. Uh, the Davy Crockett system was like a little. It's like the smallest nuke we made. It's um, the smallest one. I think was point oh one kilotons. Which means how many a ton. I'm not, I'm not good at this. Oh yeah, point oh one kilotons. Is there a? Can you put that in lowest common for like terms for me? One ton of explosive, but you know, up to a kiloton. And these were fired not. Qu- they're slightly bigger than a bazooka. You know, it's a, but it's from fired from a tripod. Um, and this Davy Crockett system was was pretty extensively tested. In fact, it was the last the last Davy Crockett test was the last um, U.S. atmospheric nuke test, I think, before we started testing them underground. The first, the, the last one where somebody like shot one and it went. It's got to be called Davy Crockett as like a Disney's Wonderful World of Color thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, giving, giving the kids the 
youthful patriotic adventure hero they love. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? Like, does it makes it makes it feel kind of fun and cute to fire this bomb? What would it be today? What would the nukes be called? Uh, Power Ranger, the SpongeBob, the Yellow Power Ranger. Oh, I guess Power Ranger. That even dates me because well, so does SpongeBob. Um, let's see, what would it there be are called? no media properties the kids are actually interested in. It would just be named for a YouTuber. It'd be yeah, it'd be called Minecraft. Duh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So for for most of the sort of sixties, early seventies, this was an area that um, that we were busy fighting other wars. Uh, you know, we were, we were fighting the Soviets in, in Africa and Asia and West Germany was an, an area where there was somewhat of a, a sense of detente at least. Um, but the Fulda gap really became a hot spot during the, during the eighties, during the kind of Reagan weapons buildup when a lot of these, I mean, the, the A-10 Warthog, the Apache, these were, these were mid seventies, um, strategic assets or, you know, like wartime assets that were built really only to fight a war in the full to gap in central Germany. Where the hell are you going to use an A-10 Thunderbolt in, in any kind of geopolitical situation in 1980? This there is the, isn't anywhere. This is the era of, um, this is the era of like West German militarization that I always associate with like the Cold War tensions in this area, but it's mostly because of Roger Moore and Octopus. Mm-hmm. That's the main reason why I associate uh, West Germany with Cold War tension. And then ultimately, this is the plot of Nina's 99 Luf balloons. That's true. Right? This is it, right? Um, everyone's yeah. a superhero. Everyone's a Captain Kirk here, Ken. Um, there was an incident, one incident of actual violence uh, in the Folda Gap, it happened in the kind of, um, you know, the tension, the Berlin Wall era tension of the early 60s. In 1962, an East German border guy by the name of Rudi Arnstad was walking around uh, on his side of the wall in an area that we uh, in the West called Post Alpha. And Post Alpha is a kind of high central um, you know, a, a hilltop where a, t- a tower, like a, like a, um, like a, f- like a, an Oregon firewatch tower. Like something you'd have on the, on the fence of a prison or something. Right. A guard tower, basically an open air guard tower with a roof was built on the top of this hill and it was manned by observers whose job was to sit in this tower with binoculars looking out over the great misty plain of central Germany uh, of the, of the Fulda Valley. And the Fulda is a town that's named after a river. So it's a Fulda, it's a gap. First it was a river, then it was a town, then it was a gap. But the soldiers on their watchtower at post alpha looked out with their binoculars and their job was to see if anyone was coming. And this is an era where we have the CIA has satellites that can see in your, into your underwear drawer, their SR 71s flying around. Um, but the, there's also a guy with binoculars just in case 
20,000 tanks get by everything else. And this was described as Steve or Rudy or whoever. That's uh, Rudy. This was described as the hottest spot of the Cold War post alpha. Um, hottest in the sense of most well, likely to flare up. Yeah. You're just, I mean, you're at the, the, um, the inflection point. It wasn't hottest, like the most sought after posting. No, although I mean it's a nice view and the, and cooling breezes up there. I don't know if I'd request it, but of course, uh, because the Soviets, you know, never had a, never had a good idea. They also put a guard tower up on their side to look to look at Rudy to look. Well, no, to look at our guard tower because Rudy was an East German. Oh, Rudy's on the east side. Okay. Yeah, so they're not looking up the valley to see if we're coming because. It isn't a scenario where we're going to invade East Germany. Do they know that? I think everybody knew okay. that there wasn't the Fulda Gap was not our big opportunity to get to. Um, we're not going to send in Roger Moore and clown makeup on a train. Yeah, we're not trying to get to Hof um, or like Plauen. There's not as much reason for Speak us to want to go there. For yourself. I mean, I know you're always trying to get to Plauen. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um. So in this incident, the Rudy, uh, the Rudy Arnstad incident, Rudy didn't like the look of some West Germans and actually um, started yelling at them and said, Halt! Schnell! Or whatever it is that Germans yell at each other. Halt, probably. Halt! Sure. Hogan! I'm never there when they're yelling at each other. I only know what halt. they yell at me. And the, the, uh, the West Germans were like, up your nose with a rubber hose, however you say that in German. And uh, Rudy fired at them. Oh. And there turn, it turned into some sh shots fired both directions. And Rudy actually was killed in the firefight. Oh, this is like the kind of stuff that happened occasionally on the DMZ. Yeah, during right. The, Every once in a while. During the 70s and 80s. People shoot at each other. Rudy was actually shot above the right eye and died. And um, although there, there was never an investigation of the incident, Rudy was taken, uh, was kind of... Uh, like regarded as a folk hero in the East, in yeah. East German. Everybody's thing. chanting, Rudy, yeah. Rudy. He was the guy, Rudy. you know, he's the martyr for the cause. Uh, and, and weirdly, crazily, at the, so at the end of the Cold War, this Fulda Gap, the importance of the Fulda Gap, um, if you can, if you think about the, the late 80s, the tension around the, this potential conflict seem to just grow and grow and grow. It's not that Glasnost let the, um, let the pressure off. It felt like as long as Reagan was president, I mean, Gorbachev was, seemed nice and cuddly, but the military was, both militaries were absolutely poised to assure their mutual destruction until the very, very last hour. Uh, in this conflict, and it's it, it still astonishes me that um, that nothing ever actually precipitated it. And w this is something that scholars will be talking about for a for a million years. Uh, and I think we, we we don't remark on it enough even now that there's really no the the likelihood of having survived the Cold War is so small. That was like our fold gap. That was the little center of the hourglass we had to pass through. 
Yeah. Now everything's great. Historically, now, like, how did we make it through this fold of gap? Now the species is clearly fine. Yeah, we've done so well. <laughs> we've made such a wonderful world. Everything's fine. I am kind of nostalgic for a time when it only seemed like one existential threat existed to the human race. And maybe that is part of the nostalgia I feel for it. Um, because not, not because I love to have one enemy, but because the, because it's better than having 30. Yeah. Or it's, be, it's better than having just enemy and friend be indistinguishable and situational and change from hour to hour and not, and all the things that you thought are now things you can't think or don't think or, 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 uh, uh, disavow. Uh, it's just a very, um, my, my teen years even though it was insanely stupid at the time, the idea of a Russian tank yeah. was, was, was palpable. It was, uh, it was a manageable fear and it was, um, and it, and it was, it represents trillions and trillions of dollars of, and, and think about all the ulcers that 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 the fold gap produced in people's bellies, not just people that lived there in the, you know, in in uh, Thuringia, but you know, globally, like this spot seemed to be the flashpoint. It was in all of our brains, even if we didn't know what it was called. And it never, and it never happened. It was, um, it not only did it not happen, it was never going to happen. Imagine going back in time to tell nineteen seventies America. Hey, I know all this Brezhnev era buildup and Watergate and post-Vietnam on we. I know it seems terrible, but someday we're going to say, it was a simpler time about you. I know. Someday you're going to be our, it was a simpler time. Yeah, this is, this is going to seem so fun uh, <laughs> relative to the future. In 1998, the story got out that the West German soldier who shot Rudy Armstad was a man by the name of Hans Plushke. Got him. And Hans shot Rudy in this skirmish. And although Rudy was lionized as a martyr of the East, Hans was just, um, his identity was concealed or like, you know, never made it into the newspapers until long after uh, reunification and reconciliation. And at the time, Hans was working as a taxi driver. And he gave us a, a, a couple of interviews as this, you know, as the Cold War was kind of being digested in the German popular press. And he said, you know, I hated the idea that I'd killed this person and, you know, it, it and the Cold War sucked and I hated to be, to, to play the, the, this or any role in it. And um, shortly after this interview, he was found shot to death in a car park and the, uh, the bullet wound was right over his right eye. Ooh. So what does that mean? When was this? This happened in the 1998. 1998. So it's, uh, it's what? Patriotic Russian oligarch sending out a hitman. It's, uh, some KGB vestige. I mean, it was, a. it was, I guess the he's the last casualty of the Fulda Gap. And that concludes the Fulda Gap, entry 
2K0316, certificate number 51668, in the Omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, if you also crave a simpler time, back before uh, back before President Zuckerberg made social media compulsory, um, you can find our more innocent uh, goings-on, doings, doings-on, as the saying is. Oh, on, on's doings. Sayings-on. On sayings. At Omnibus Project on various social media platforms. I'm at Ken Jennings. You can find John Roderick on his Patreon of the same name. Uh, you could ex- you could email us your own Cold War memories. All of you who were, all of you who were stationed in Germany, we'd like to hear from you, or who were born from born there on accompanied tours. Yeah, or yeah, right, born born from a love of an American serviceman and his and his, his young German Fraulein. Young German Fraulein. Yeah, I mean, maybe in some cases he married the Fraulein, mm-hmm. and uh, and now you all live in uh, Colorado Springs. I know quite a few people who have that story. It it seems. It seems kind of crazy, but it's a very common story. It is. And yeah. there's there's an Asian equivalent, and I know many of them. Yeah. Uh, please uh, send us your stories to theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, if some of you feel like you were the last survivor of the Cold War, please send us other uh, ephemera. Yeah, if you have full-to-gap memorabilia that's just clogging up your tchotchke shelf, send it on. My dad was stationed at the Fulda Gap, and all I got was this stupid T-shirt. That seems like a great T-shirt, actually. Send it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Do, do reach out to your fellow futurelings online, Facebook group, or the subreddit, or the Discord. Have a good time. Have some innocent fun. Uh, Forget about your cares for a moment. What use is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life's a cabaret. You can also... Wow, I don't remember writing any of that in our outro, but I no, feel we, like... No, we say that twice a week. Huh. You don't remember? I do my uh, Joel Gray impression. I don't know. I'm kind of having a little bit of a stroke, I guess. Bienvenue. Welcome. <laughs> we, uh, what have I not said? We have a Patreon. Yeah, we do. You, you can support the show if your discretionary income, if your household budget allows. Why not keep Omnibus going? Do it. And enjoy the uh, attendant perks. Do it. Perks. At, at patreon.com slash omnibus project you can find all the great lifestyle accoutrements that come with supporting uh, this important project and it's attendant burial vault of gold records those are expensive those mm, don't pay for mm, themselves mm, mm, mm. gold is expensive and more expensive all the time uh, that's what i understand that's why i uh, bought it all from the fox news commercial well, and uh, keep it in ingots it's, it's a good thing that we invested so heavily in Bitcoin when we had the chance. And I made, Dogecoin. I made little tiny Lego-shaped ingots and painted them all in Lego colors. And I now have... Smart. I now have uh, 300 pounds of gold at my house in yeah. little tiny Lego brick form. I, uh, I employed the technique of season three of uh, Money Heist slash Paper House, and I melted all the ingots down into tiny little BBs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm. I sold mine for paper money, which I then tried to melt down, but I just burned it. Oh, see, I could have I could have helped you with that. The K Foundation yeah. did not teach me. <laughs> um so yeah, please support uh please support the Patreon. Omnibus needs you. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. 
But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.